0: G'day and welcome to another instalment of the Fly Fishers podcast.
1: Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing at our Melbourne fly shop. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Today, we're joined by Craig Coltman to discuss style fly fishing. Craig is an accomplished competition fly fishing coach and angler, representing Australia on the global stage an impressive 19 times. As well as his heavy involvement in competitive fly fishing, Craig guides lucky anglers on the waters of Millbrook Lakes. Craig discovered style fly fishing in 1994 while preparing for the Commonwealth Championships. He found it to be a deadly technique on our home waters. And it rapidly became one of his preferred lake techniques. Craig is an authority on the technique, recently coaching the Australian team to success in the 2023 Commonwealth Fly Fishing Champs in Isla. In this episode, we tap into Craig's knowledge on lockstar fishing in an attempt to learn more on the subject. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. Craig, how long have you been? When did you discover lockstar fishing? Ooh, gee, that journey started back in
2: 1994. Um, So what happened was myself and Royce Baxter, another Ballarat-based fly fisherman, we were selected into um, the Australian fly fishing team to go and represent Australia in Ireland at the World Championships. Um, And we knew that we'd be fishing lock style from drifting boats um, and we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, But fortunately we we lived in Ballarat and we had Lake Wendaree there. Uh, And in fact, back in those days, Lake Wenderee closed to fishing during the... The, the, you know, the closure, and fisheries kindly gave us a special permit for it to stay open. So we started to experiment with different lock-style techniques, not knowing what we were doing, just reading up on it. Um, and yeah, it turned out that, guess what, trout really respond well to lock-style techniques because prior to that, um, certainly in Ballarat, to what I've been exposed to, people were fishing a single fly, Um and often they were really only using boats as a way of getting around, rather than fishing from the boat. Uh, I think earlier, in say up grandparents' time, there was more lock style fishing was happening, um, certainly around Ballarat. Um, but things changed, and I think we had we were exposed to American sort of you know matching the hatch, this sort of stuff, and people drifted away from traditional lock style. And I think the boats changed, and the range of things changed. So. That sort of knowledge was lost, but then it started to become rediscovered. And particularly when that team came back from Ireland with what we had learned, that really started, if you like, the I suppose the reemergence of lock style and fishing from boats um, back in mainland Australia so or in Tasmania. It of course.
0: sounds like it's a, a much older technique than <laughs> I was giving it credit for. Then, do you any idea oh, when it was yeah. actually first developed? Hundred percent. Really, it's it develops. It goes right back to
2: both Ireland predominantly Ireland, England and Scotland, uh, and fishing from a drifting boat. And if its purest form, what you're casting is quite a short line. So if you think these fellows would have had cane rods, quite heavy, not good for casting long distances. Uh, they'd often have silk lines, which of course would start to sink a bit too after use. They'd have a team of flies, either three, or in fact in Irish cases there'd be even four flies. And they're actually just casting out only five pulls back in, into a dibble, so pull the flies back through the waves and back out again, maybe one false cast. Uh, And certainly when we fished in Ireland, we identified that most of our strikes were coming in that time, so we were casting very short and only putting out, say, a maximum of five strips into a dibble, back out. So you're stroking the water as your uh, boat is drifting downwind. So you're covering fresh water all the time. So actually... You don't necessarily have to fish long uh, and of course that way you can maximise the amount of time you're dibbling your flies
0: through the surface, which is a particularly effective part of the technique. And presumably like when you <coughs> first gave lock style fishing a go, you mentioned in the close season, so the not really a mayfly time of year or any kind of surface activity yet, did you have success in those early days? Yeah, we did. We did. A-
2: and you still will. Uh, obviously, you tend to fish flashier flies. Uh, and what's actually happened is that um, lock-style fishing has evolved. It's changed now because for a couple of reasons. Um, well, there's more access to boats. We're more affluent. Uh, so lots more people have boats. But most importantly, it's the it's the rods. Uh, nowadays, the rods are obviously a lot lighter, a lot faster. So effectively, you can cast a lot further a lot easier than what would have happened in our uncle's father's grandfather's time so effectively we're fishing at a longer length now than we used to covering more water but again when the fish are really on you can fish short and yes Andrew as you alluded to um, during the winter months we'll be fishing more lure style flies uh, and or flashier style flies. Um, but then as soon as insects start hatching, particularly mayfly, that's when the traditional lock style flies really come into their own. So if you were to look at the, say, around the Darat area where I, I live, um, from about beginning to the second week of October onwards through to Christmas, and it'll go quiet again during the heat of summer, and then again in Uh, the end of March through to the end of May, it'll fire up again. If you're down in Tasmania, uh, if you're on the lowland lakes, it's about the same time as for Ballarat. If you think Four Springs, exactly the same. But again, up in the the central highlands, sort of the first to kick off will be um, Woods Lake. That'll kick off in about October. Um, Yeah, in about October... Then you'll find going into early November, then you'll get penstock, then you'll get arthur's and then finally little pine will kick off at the beginning of of December. Just as you get higher in elevation, the mayfly will hatch and that's when the fish start looking up. So what you really want is you want upward looking fish
1: and that's when traditional style lock style really comes into its own. This is a quick interruption to let you know that this podcast was brought to you by the Fly Fisher. Since 1967, we've been committed to helping you along every step of your fly fishing journey. Whether you're a trout bum or a flats master, the fly fisher has all the gear to get you on the water and catching fish. Uh, so is it
2: always done with a floating line? Well, that's something that's really dawned on me in recent times is, no, it's not. And I mentioned that the original um, silk lines would have actually sunk after they've been used a fair bit. And I've always done it with a, su- a floating line, other than in really rough conditions. Because I think in really rough conditions, a, a very slow sinking line... Like you get, a hover. Yeah, a hover yeah. Or, or a slow intermediate mm-hmm. uh, will keep you in better contact with the flies. But it sort of dawned on me in recent times that it's not just gives you better contact. I think the fish prefer it. Right. Uh, so fishing... The rougher it gets if you just fish a little bit below. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I think it, well, it definitely does fish better to fish a slow sinking line. And it could be that those flies are just running maybe just an inch or slow deeper, which means that they're less likely to get lost in that surface clutter. I'm, I'm assuming that that's the reason why, but I don't know why. I guess we guess. But yeah, so I, I increasingly now like to, to fish a slow sinking line. I wonder if a,
0: a dry fly has a tendency to <coughs> surf a wave in a way that yeah could, the hover just might make it stick there a little bit better it, without it
2: that. It might be, but I'm tending to be fishing my flies pretty fast too. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. And we certainly noticed as a, as a team when we were away in, in Isla in the recent Commonwealth Fly Fishing Championships that uh, a roly-poly retrieve was actually our best technique. We caught more fish on that than any other retrieve. Um, so we'll be pulling our flies fairly fast. As a general rule, the bigger the wave, the faster you pull them. Uh, but one of the other things that we've... Well, I used to actually have my bob fly, middle fly and my point fly, and the bob fly would be the, the most buoyant or, or water-resistant fly. Then you'd have a, maybe a winged wet fly in the middle and, say, a cruncher or something like that in the point. But in increasingly, what we've been doing is we've been putting a very buoyant fly on the point such as a sedge hog or any of those pulling dry fly style uh, flies. So they'll start off on the surface, then they come down and then they come back up. And um, they've been very effective uh, catching lots of fish um, on that type of fly. And again, when we were away in Isla, a, uh what we call an
0: Orkney sedge hog was easily our best fly. Uh, and you guys were fishing those on the point and then you, you had more subsurface? oriented rock style flies further up the yeah
2: leader. so we'll go like a traditional bob fly uh which would be something like a um oh gee let's see so um, well a dirty weaker or a bumble style fly on the top dropper then we'd run a a, a, a march brown a traditional winged fly on yep. the middle and then we'd use a sedge
0: hog on the point Okay, so you've got like a bit of a, a U-shape in the... Yeah, we do. so In the presentation, effectively. Yeah,
2: so we've got like a waking fly on the top, right not a dry fly, it's a wet fly, but it's a waking fly, then a slimmer profile fly in the middle, and then a pulling dry fly on the point. Um,
0: yeah, and is that in, in some way related to that washing line technique that the palms go on No. Uh,
2: Yes and no. No, the washing right, so line yeah, is a bit different. Okay. Yes,
0: so you're looking to fish
2: that very slow. Yeah, um, and and the blob is used to anchor your team. Okay. Right. So you've got something to pull against. Yeah. Well, say a blob. It'll be a booby or a fab, um, and it also to keep your, your your nymphs, which are the flies you're really expecting to catch up, high up in the water. Right. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit different approach. But, yeah. Uh, but you could understand why you would sort of compare the two. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, it, it just uh, I guess you're pulling these these flies, and you're obviously not really seeing the takes, or are you seeing the takes in yeah. some in some instances? You are or all or, all instances. You're seeing them and feeling them yeah. because you actually
2: are in direct contact with your flies. Okay. So, uh, particularly if they're taking the, uh, the the point fly, you'll see the fish come over the point fly, and you'll feel it almost instantaneously. Yeah. Again, the very important part of this technique is that. Once uh, your fly line is about three to four metres away from the boat, so that's the end of your fly line, not the end of your cast, you then sweep up with your rod tip. And what does that do effectively? It, what you're trying to do is dibble your bob fly, so that's the fly that's on the top, through the waves. And it creates a scratch as you go through the waves. Like a wake. Like a wake, yeah. Right. And and that that is a real turn-on for fish. And sometimes more than 50% of your fish will actually come at that stage. Um, It varies from day to day. Fish are weird things, you know, (laughs) they have different moods, but when they want it that way, it it can actually create some Mm -hmm. really exciting and visual fishing because you'll see the fish come over. And in fact, the most difficult part is to not strike Mm. because it's a bit like when you're swinging, you just basically do nothing and let the fish go down on the fly. and he almost talks himself. If you pull back... You'll often pull the the fly out of his mouth, but uh, to see them come up and grab it so close to the boat, it's uh, it's really fun fishing.
0: Yeah. So the the <coughs> bob fly, what <coughs> kind of patterns might you uh, to, like? If yes, you're so a fishing wendery, the bob fly, what would that be? Oh, look, BBO.
2: Yeah. Uh, Kate McLaren. Kate McLaren is one of the all-time great uh, right. top flies. Okay. Uh, particularly for uh, for brown trout, but also works on 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 rainbows. Yeah. Um, a fly called a Dirty Weaker, a Dubri, a Zulu, Claret Bumble, uh, all of those are really good top flies. Yeah. Equally, if the fish are really so, onto the top, you can actually run a Sedgehog up there as well. Right. But that's a bit different because that will stay on the top all the time. We're talking with a classic dibble, it's under the water, then you bring it up to the surface. Okay, uh, But certainly pre season on, um, on Lake Wendaree, Cape McLaren, that yeah. yellow tail, I just love it.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the Wenderee Cruncher, where where does that get a
2: mention in your? Okay, so that goes on to the point. Gotcha. So traditionally, I would fish a, a Wenderee Cruncher on the point, uh, which just happens to have a yellow tail. Um, then I'd have a Connemara Black on the middle, uh, which is a traditional winged wet fly, uh, which again has a yellow tail. Would you believe? And then you've got the um, you've got the um, the Kate McLaren on the top, which again has a yellow tail. So. For me on lake wenderee yellow tails leading up to christmas then the yellow tails disappear uh, in the second half of the year i'm going a lot drabber in color so i'd be more inclined to run a, uh, yeah, a bibio on the top dropper or and then in the middle i'd have a um, uh, what you call it, a, a claret millard uh, and then on the point i could be running like a, a Gary's Cruncher, something like that. Yep. Not as bright of flies, because okay. it's more browns in the autumn, rainbows in in the in the spring.
0: Yeah, one of the complicated <coughs> thing I reckon for a lot of listeners might be these different uh, types of flies that are for lock style things, like crunches. You know. Um, bungs, uh, all that stuff, it, how do you classify each different family of, of flies used for lock style? Like, yeah. how does a cruncher differ, differ to, say, Kate McLaren? Okay, so
2: we're thinking, if we think about the way a traditional cast would be put together, the bob one, well, that's the one on the top, you're looking for something that has a lot of resistance in the water. So it's a fully palmed fly, and it'll tend to move water. So right. that's where those Cape McLarens and whatever, come into play. And traditionally I would fish them on the top dropper or the bob flies are caught. Then the middle fly, I'm looking for something that's dressed but not as heavily dressed. So it has a slightly slimmer profile and that's where the winged wet flies come into play. But equally, oh, and I forgot one, a, a claret dabbler, um, right. one of the great lock style flies. I can't remember, I haven't mentioned that one sooner. Mm. But equally you could go with a size 12 one on the top and a size 14 mm. one. On the middle. Okay. But a claret dabbler is, again, is a very good middle dropper fly. And then we're starting to slim down. So on the point, that's where I would put in a cruncher. Mm-hmm. Um, or I might, if, say if it's a bright day, I might actually even put a damselfly nymph on right. the point okay. as well. Yeah, that was going
0: to be my next question. Yeah. And what about yeah. a mayfly nymph? Would you ever just put an unweighted nymph there? Yep, yeah, 100%. Okay.
2: Uh, yeah, and we've got one we've done for fly stream, which we called the, uh, oh, what do we call it? The The Rodney which yep. is a, yeah, the, 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 that dark claret fly with the bright orange bead. Again, that works well if you want to anchor your fly or maybe fish it a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you could play around a bit. If you thought you wanted to fish a little bit slower and you didn't have quite as big a wave, you might run something like a claret dabber on the top dropper. Then you'd run the cruncher on the middle and then you'd run the, the weighted uh, rodney on the point. So we're slowing everything down and we're fishing everything a little bit deeper. Right.
0: Um, how many flies are we allowed in Victoria? Uh, you're only allowed two in Victoria. Right. In
2: New South Wales and Tasmania, you're allowed three. Right. Again, yeah. in competitions, we have an ex- exemption, so we run three. So what I do is, if I'm only running two flies, I don't worry about the middle fly.
0: Okay, that's the one that gets deleted. You've still <laughs> yeah. got the bob fly there and you've, you've still got the Exactly. Point. So you'll still have your bob fly and your point fly. Right. Uh,
2: and you can sort of alternate them backwards and forwards. So you might run a parrot-dabbler on the top dropper, and then, say, Gary's cruncher on the point. Yeah. Yeah, so don't worry about the middle fly as much.
0: And any of those, uh, like, woolly-bugger-styled streamers, can you fish those in a lock-style sort of team? Well,
2: yes, but then you're actually moving away from traditional lock-style. So what you're then really doing is, yes, you're fishing from a boat, and, yes, the boat may be drifting, uh, but you're more likely to be fishing those on a sinking line, like – we're not, when, when we're talking about the slow intermediates or hovers, let's call them as surface-style lines. But then you're going to f- you know, fast intermediates, DI3s, DI5s, um, you're fishing deeper. And so that's the way we tend to fish uh, through more through the winter months, when the fish are looking down rather than looking up. Uh, and that's when your blobs and your magoos and those types of flies tend to dominate the fishing scene so it's still very similar but it is a different approach right uh, and in fact even your retrieves and the hang mm. so you're not dibbling you're hanging, so you're stopping your flies in the water um,
0: so it's similar but it is different yeah. as well so when we talk lock style fishing <coughs> with you you're uh, you're saying we're in the top foot of the water column Cor- essentially correct that's where lock style fishing is it, that's where it's mo- most effective and yeah, it's smaller flies and we're right. using flies that are more traditional
2: size 12 uh, where
0: where a damsel on nymph would be the big fly.
2: Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and again during those cooler months what we're doing is we're pulling. Mm. It's and it's a different approach. So I tend to disparagingly refer to it as pulling marabou but effectively <laughs> that's what you're doing. And yeah. you're putting a lot of flash and a lot of bling Often, inch your flies to get the the fish looking at your flies. So, you know, people look down their noses at blobs and stuff, but you know what, they work.
1: So, when do we choose to pull, and when do we choose to fish lock style? Is it just the cooler <coughs> months? And
2: it's it it comes back to trout behaviour. So, if we look at it now, we're sort of we're sort of smack bang in the the middle of the off season, let's call it. So, back on the water now, I'll be fishing. If I was going out fishing, I'd be pulling marabou. Um, it's not the way I prefer to fish, but if you want to catch fish, that's the way you're going to be doing it. So certainly I'll be fishing like a blob on the dropper. Uh, and normally when I'm pulling marabou, I only run two flies, because I reckon two flies, big flies are enough. You can get away with three when you've got a small flies, but I'll only run two, and they're about seven feet apart. So I'll have, say, a, a coral or a sunburst blob on the top dropper, and then I'll have a orange the magoo or a viva magoo on the point or maybe a, a humongous those type of flies uh, normally start off on the di3 um, but depending on the depth of water i'm going down then as soon as i start to see mayfly hatching later in the season that's when i change my attention to the top and that's my own personal bias in
0: fishing too i prefer to be fishing on the top than pulling marabout. Um, It's also a pretty solid indication that the fish are going to be higher in the water column. Correct. I mean, within a week of the mayfly starting to hatch, the fish will have tuned onto them. They're onto them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It normally takes about a week for them to get right on, but they'll be onto them. Yeah.
0: So if you turned up to a lake (coughs) and you fish streams all morning and then you see a rise, is that enough for you to go... Right. Uh, it doesn't take much to get me <laughs> up on top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that'd yeah. be enough to get me, me
2: trying, trying the surface. Sure. Uh, unless it was the middle of winter or something like that. Mm. But but again, I'll in the autumn I'll do the same until it's the end of uh, uh, April, beginning of May, when, again, the, the mayflies start to peter out. And then, of course, the fish behaviour changes as well, because guess what? They're thinking about spawning, so you're looking... Get an aggressive response sometimes out of the fish other than a feeding response. You know, people say to me, What are you imitating with a a blob? You know, is it Mm. imitating a a fish egg? No, it's actually just getting in the fish's face. Mm. Gets in the fish's face, the fish sees it, so the fish eats it. Uh, It's it's
0: Daphnia, though, isn't it? The blob? No, No. No. just a Daphnia (laughs) ball. No, 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 no. It's like a balling midge, but Daphnia.
2: Often, I think we tend to. Overcomplicate fly fishing. So for me, it's very much fish where the fish are, get your fly in front of the fish and make sure the fly is behaving the same way and get the fish's attention. Um, if you do that, you're going to catch fish and that's why blobs work yeah. uh, because fish are inherently inquisitive. Um, but the only way they can investigate a fly is with their eyes or their mouth. They haven't got hands. Mm. Yeah, so... Effectively, if they want to investigate something, they stick it in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's why blobs work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ah, for sure. Um, let's talk about gear a little bit. You mentioned longer rods before. <laughs> mm. Why are we using longer rods? Uh, for a couple of reasons.
2: One, we will t- throw a more open loop with a, with a bigger rod. Remember, we're, 99% of the time we're casting downwind or at 45 degrees from the wind. So, they're useful in that respect, particularly when you've got a team of flies on. Also, they give you more control of the fish around the boat. That extra length helps you when the fish is trying to get under the boat or around the outboard or even going around the boat and doing a captain cook, as I (laughs) taught, where they go all the way around and you've got a drogue out the back. Um, So, I tend to use 10 foot to 9 foot 6 rods, so slightly longer. And most people would, the most common rod would be a six weight. 10 foot rod and again they're so light nowadays um they're they're really joys to use so that's the reason for the the longer rod
1: yeah and we've covered fly lines a little bit but Mm. uh say you're going out on wenderee you'd be taking a hover and a floating or just yeah
2: yeah so i use uh wenderee i could be using a, a slow intermediate if it's really rough uh if it's um just moderate it'd be a hover uh, and they're a bit misnamed hovers because it's not they don't hover in the water; they just sink very very slowly. Uh, or if there's really not much wave at all, I'd use the floater. Uh, but I do like floaters with long bellies. Uh, so, and the reason for that is I like to be able to pick a lot of line off the water and then recover a rising fish. Where if I've got a short belly line, I've got to strip that belly head all the way to the tip to be able to lift off. You've lost precious seconds, and the fish is. You know, you've missed your opportunity. Equally, when you're dropping all that line at your feet, if you've got a long belly line, you get less
1: tangles. There what about midge tip and sink tip lines?
2: Yeah, certainly if you're doing it from the bank, uh, and this has certainly came into play for the Commonwealth team in Isla, we used a lot of sink tip lines in that situation because we were actually fishing from the bank, so we were wading, but we were lock styling. Right. Right, so we're fishing exactly the same way we would from a boat, But rather than drifting along, we were wading along. Mm. Now, if I use a full sinking line and a hover or a slow intermediate is a full sinking line, it's hard to make those casts because the line is sinking at your feet. Where if you've got, say, a 10-foot intermediate
0: head and then a floating line behind that, it's easier to you do You don't it. want to be wasting those precious seconds. The more your flyers in the water, the more fish you're going to catch. Correct, and
2: also it's more, in just from a recreational perspective, it's more enjoyable. Yeah, less mucking it's around. Less mucking about, easier to make the cast. So certainly I think um, um, midge tips and all, you know, uh, what you call sink tips yeah. at the front, they definitely have their place, and particularly for... Um, bank-based anglers. They're very useful in that situation.
0: Craig, you mentioned casting to a rising fish with the lock-style technique just then. Um, Do you start moving the flies immediately the moment that they land? Depends on the team I've got
2: on. If I've got... I mentioned before about putting those um, pulling dries on, I might just sit that there for a tick. yeah, And I'm talking maybe three or four seconds, that's it, Mm. and then I'll start moving them. Right. Uh, If I'm just working water now i pretty much start fishing them straight away okay cool and it's a quick retrieve or a fast retrieve you've got to play about with it it depends on the on the fish's mood most people who are new to this though don't move their flies fast enough so i would say with this and the same if, if you're fishing you know pulling marabou as well uh if in doubt pull a bit faster uh,
0: do you put a pause in there at all like if there's a fish <laughs> tracking those flies, do yeah. you? you can. You can. But I've often found, and
2: people have different opinions on this, if I can see a fish following my fly, in some situations you will. you either see him or you'll actually see a little bit of a wake. You, you just get that feeling, hang on, there's a fish at my flies. Increasingly, I'll speed up. Right. Right? <laughs> it's, it's getting away. The yeah. fish grabs it. Uh, but certainly, when you then move up into the dibble, or if you're, um, or if you're, you're pulling marabou, the hang where you just stop, often that's when the fish will take as well. I mean, it's interesting that the reason the hang came into play was because in English reservoirs, where they're fishing predominantly for stocked fish, they moved from floating pellets to sinking pellets. <laughs> and Bob Church, <laughs> I was fishing with him. You know, he was one of the icons of competition fishing in. We're fishing on Brennigan Wales, and Bob said, oh, if you don't mind me telling you, Craig, you're not hanging properly. I went, oh, tell me, you know, because I thought that when you hung the fly, you actually wanted to hang it. You wanted to suspend it in the water. What you do is you stop and let the fly sink in the water.
0: Right.
2: Because what was happening is these stockies Mm. were following the fly but weren't eating it. (laughs) <laughs> then you stopped and it started to fall that's when they were grabbing
0: they're used to seeing their pellet sink correct
2: <laughs> and it just so happens that guess what stockies like it that way but wild fish like it that way as well mm-hmm. so that's important thing is that stop and then the lift back up when you're fishing a sinking line okay uh, so I, I tend to break the cast down into again this is when you're sinking line fishing the plop so that's When your fly hits the water, you don't want it going in with a great big crash. You wanted it going over and going plop. And if it plops, the fish will actually gravitate to the plop. If it crashes in, they'll they'll get scared and they'll swing away. So you've got the plop, then you've got the drop. Mm -hmm. That's when you're letting your fly drop in the water. You're just keeping in contact. Then you've got your retrieve. Then you've got the hang, where you stop. And then finally you've got the lift as you lift the flies back up. So when I'm working with an Australian team, they're the five things that we consistently always do when we're retrieving. Plop, drop,
0: retrieve, hang, lift. Oh, there's some gold there, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) The Commonwealth secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, talk us through the rig um, and the distance between the flies. Uh, Let's start maybe with a two-fly rig that you can get away with in Victoria. Sure. So if I'm fishing off the
2: bank... Um, I would use a a seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader, nylon, uh, down to 2X. So 2X, that's about eight pound. Yeah. Uh, And then I'll run six-pound nylon, right, Uh, as in six-pound maxima, five-pound maxima off that, and there's about, from that first dropper, which is tied onto the seven-and-a-half-pound, down to the point, is about five to six feet. That's, That's it. So I... Off the bank because, again, I'll often be casting across the breeze. Having that taper, I think, is an advantage. Yeah. Uh, so the Commonwealth team in Isla, that's what we used. 2X. 2X. Yeah. It's a start and then down. Yeah, you you don't want really supple, thin lines for this because your droppers get tangled up. Right. And also they fatigue. So there's this thing, you know, this belief that you have to be super fine and whatever, you don't. Remember, we're talking about pulling these things through the waves, right? So it's not that the flies get a lot of opportunity, the fish get a lot of opportunity to inspect stuff. Uh, and those stiffer lines, the droppers will sit better, they behave better, and that's where good old-fashioned maxima really comes into play.
0: Yeah. No, that's yeah. a it's a bit of a, an eye-opener, I think, and, and a lot of listeners will have just gone, oh, actually, you know, if I'm moving my fly, I can get away with fishing a heavier tippet because it's not, we're not trying to present that fly in its most natural way possible like we are dead drifting a, a mayfly. Correct, yeah. And, and then you ca-
2: hook into a fish of a lifetime and you get a chance of landing, the, landing that fish as mm. well. Which is, uh, so then if, we were, if we're fishing out of a boat, um, I would I just go straight level line. Uh, so it could be five or six pound mm. maximum straight through. Yeah, uh, The same distances apart. Um, if I've got a three-fly rig... I'll normally have, from the end of the fly line, I'll just use the loop on the end of the fly line, tie directly onto that with a um, with a blood knot. I hate those loop-to-loop connections. They are awful. Always <laughs> cut them off. Particularly <laughs> if you've got one of those tapered leaders, just chop it off and tie a blood knot straight on. Yep. Um, less catch points, a lot smoother through the, the rod tip. Yep. So five feet to my first... Just so one. we
0: don't get everyone calling, though, it does destroy the loop on the end of your fly line.
2: Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> no. Nah, nah, I've been using the same lines for years. They're fine.
0: Yeah, they're fine. So you you are you are able to replace that section that is knotted onto the fly line multiple times without it actually biting through the PVC coating that you've done with that blood yeah. knot. Yeah,
2: and even if it does bite into it, doesn't matter. It's still tied onto the onto the you know, the core the of the core. line yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. So I've been doing that time after time after time. Have no trouble at all. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, so we've got five feet from the end of the fly line to the bob fly, mm-hmm. then another five feet to the middle fly, and then another five feet to the point fly. Okay. Uh, yep. That's nice and easy to handle. It means that when, if I catch a fish on the point fly, uh, I don't have too long a distance between the bob fly and the point fly for landing the fish when I get in at the edge. If it's too long a distance, you, you can't actually get the rod high enough in the air to, to net the fish, and I've found that that's a good way of doing it if i'm fishing marabou so pulling lures and blobs and stuff it becomes seven feet and seven feet right uh, and in that situation i change to fluorocarbon and i'm normally fishing 10 pound if it's they're really big fish i'll fish 12 pound Yeah, mm. uh, you know, somewhere between nine pound to 12 pounds so heavy line mm. um, for what we would normally consider for trout fishing but you're pulling them fast they're yeah. big flies at doesn't matter.
0: Do you think there is a tendency for a lot of fly fishers to maybe not have enough distance between their their two flies? Yeah, I, I notice you I, see that a bit. I see
2: that a bit, particularly when we see new people coming in, maybe into the competition scene. I wind up in the boat with them, and they've only got three feet between their flies. I I think that's too close, mm. um, because the 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 flies are almost arguing with one another. Mm. Yeah? You want the fish to be seeing maybe one fly or maybe seeing the next fly, but Not necessarily all flies together. Uh, Yeah, one fly
0: at a time is, uh, I think, enough for the fish. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, sorry. I Just just going to recap. I I thought you know because we've covered a bit there, but Mm. um, uh, so two x to the fly line, correct? And then you're dropping down to three x. Would we say for the? I'm not good with my x's. I'm sorry, but yeah, it would be about
2: three x or six pound. Eight pound to six pound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about that's about point.
0: And eight to point two. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so and then if you were running another fly, the third fly, is it the same diameter oh, again? Yeah. Yep. Stick, stick okay, with the same so you don't then diameter. drop down again with that last section. No, I okay. just stick with the, the, it because the
2: difference in drop down makes really no difference to the way the cast presents on the, on the water and the way it rolls out. No, that's good. Uh, and again, if I'm fishing out of the boat downwind, I just go with a level cast. So it's all about, it's be about point three. Yep. Or three x, which is about point one eight to point two. Yeah, yep. cool. Sorry, Matt, I bumped in.
1: No, you are. Right. Um, do, are you ever treating your leaders with anything?
2: Yeah, it's um. So here in Australia, the the maxima that we tend to get the ultra green, um, is has a gloss finish, right? And I I like to treat it with Fuller's earth. So Fuller's earth, which I mix with glycerine, uh, and that's mildly abrasive, and it takes the shine off the leader. Um. In the UK, you can get a Maxima which is matte finished, uh, and it's clear. So if I've got that off, I don't bother doing it. But again, I'll always degrease if the conditions are very calm, because it's hard to get the nylon to break through the surface uh, in calm conditions. And in fact, this is an interesting one, because I often find in calm conditions, say if people are fishing dry flies, uh, they'll think, oh, I need to go a finer leader, well, guess what, or well, a tippet. If you've got a finer tippet, it's harder to get the tippet to break through the meniscus through the surface tension of the water. Well, if you go heavier, guess what, you can make it sink. Mm. So sometimes I'll find when they think, oh, the fish are difficult, I've got to go finer and finer, often you'd be better off to go a bit heavier, mm. maybe fish a fluorocarbon tippet and will degrease it, get it to break through, guess what, the fish will start taking a dry fly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something to think about because a definitely. sunken tippet is far less obvious to a fish than yeah. even a fine tippet that's floating in the meniscus yeah that's a real turn off
0: yeah i think your was your question more about actually floating the leader peter or was it about sinking yeah. uh it was just about yeah treating the line for the right conditions yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. What? so definitely in in any case a sinking leader a s- is s- sinking is better yeah yeah definitely yeah. good
1: man. um Let's move on to locations a little bit. Uh, say you wanted to try your hand in Victoria, what's the best option? Lake Winderie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: Lake Winderie is a particularly because well, number one, you can put boats on it, right? So it's a it's a great lock style fishery. Um, in my opinion, it's the best in Sydney, mainland Australia, and it's potentially one of the the, the best in Australia. Um, but look, if you go up to Snowy Mountains. Um, um, Tantangra again responds really well to lock style techniques um, as does some of the shallower areas of Eucombine. So if you go up into the portal, you know, at the moment there's tonnes of water up there, up around Provenance, those big flats up there. Again, that, I've had very good lock style fishing in that sort of two metres of water depth. You'd, basically you want to be what the Irish would call the deep shallows. So you want to be in contact with the water, uh, with the bottom, but not necessarily beyond that. So normally two metres or less of water is an ideal depth to, to fish at. But again, you know, up on Rocky Valley, uh, up at Falls Creek, again, lock-style techniques can work extremely well for you. Um, but again, I've mentioned you can do it off the bank as well. Well, Newland immediately comes into mind because you can get great wading around you Newland. So those same sort of techniques could work
0: with you with a sink tip line. When did you discover <coughs> uh, that moving fly idea? Was that, you know, like obviously lock style, that's what it is, but had you twigged onto it prior to discovering lock style, that maybe a bit of movement in, in dry flies actually worked? Um,
2: that's hard to say. I, I think really it was that early days getting into that Australian team, you know, um, and being going to Ireland, being exposed to this, I think that was a, a real pivotal moment for me. In not not just in lock style fishing, but in fishing in still water for me, that was yeah. a very important moment for me. Um, but where I quite twigged to moving the fly, it's oh,
0: I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and has it evolved for you? Are you lock style fishing differently today than what you did when you first learned it? Yeah, and the biggest difference would be
2: with this introduction of well the very slow sinking lines yeah. number one, uh, and secondly the the pulling dry flies, mm. so the sedge hogs, um, you know, Allen's fly which we're doing for Fly Stream coming up, those types of flies are designed to be buoyant. Uh, yeah, a Bibio hopper, a loop wing Bibio hopper, um, early season on little pine. Just have it on your point all the time. Mm. It's a great fly. Um, yeah, so those type of flies would. Are the, certainly, they've is they have really only turned up since. I suppose they first turned up in in the UK in the nineties. We started to see them. I suppose in the two thousands. It took a little bit of time for them to get here, but they're very effective flies. And certainly, I utilise them a lot, particularly when there's a decent wave running.
0: Yeah. Have you ever tried Lockstyle in New Zealand? Does it work over there? haven't tried it no. unfortunately
2: because i've been working as a, a professional fly fishing guide in tasmania guess what our season aligns with the with the um new zealand, new zealand, yeah. zealand season hence why i'm i'm not guiding in tasmania anymore i need to fish around the world <laughs> a bit more <laughs> but i'm sure it would work uh but I, again i don't know i'd really, i fished only in world championships and stuff i've fished in New Zealand on the still waters but it, that's tend to be fishing marabou or buzzers um, it hasn't been where it's dominated by sedge or, or mayfly yep. yeah yeah oh, very cool
1: um you mentioned you've guided down in tassie <coughs> what did you find what lakes did you find to be the most productive
2: oh well, look certainly I, I was based in maina so the cent- those central highlands lakes of woods penstock Arthur's not of recent times, but it is showing signs of slowly coming back. Um, Little Pine, still my favourite. I love Little Pine. But down to Bronte, um, Dee, um, they'd be the waters I would target, particularly with these type of techniques the most. Uh, And, of course, off the mountain, Lake Lake, Leek and Four Springs um, respond very well to it as well, but at different times of the the year because it's lowland fishing rather than highland fishing.
1: Yeah, so lake, lake Lake seems very se- uh, <coughs> very seasonal fishery. What time of year for...?
2: Uh, so that's spring or autumn? Yeah. Yeah, spring or autumn, late autumn. And it just depends on the depth there. Um, it seems when the lake is lower, that to me, I think it fishes better. When there's a lot of water, I don't think it fishes as well. Um, but certainly you can have some really good fishing and good quality fish when it's, it's fishing well. But I, I certainly wouldn't be going over there. Um, wouldn't be going over there unless I heard that it was fishing okay. Because it's a fair hike.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it, you know. It sounds like the, <coughs> the waters where it really is effective are fairly shallow waters, and uh, you've basically mentioned every good mayfly water in Tasmania. Yeah, it's it's yeah. You, that's what you're doing.
2: You're going to shallow. Uh, productive, fertile waters. Um, When you're looking at the deep, I suppose, less fertile waters, such as Great Lake, Lake Sinclair, Lake Echo, those type of waters, great waters to fish, uh, but they tend to be driven by terrestrial activity. So that's when you're looking for those hot days, uh, a bit of wind, where beetles and bugs and stuff are likely to get blown onto the water. So that will get the fish looking up. But then you're tending to be fishing traditional or well, static dry flies or very slow move dry flies. What we're talking about is waters which are highly fertile, which often have a lot of mayfly in them, and fish are actually yeah, looking to respond to that. So it's it's a different approach. So they're feeding on aquatic food rather than terrestrial food. Okay.
0: No, that's good. Well, geez, that's uh that's a lot, I reckon, <laughs> that we've covered there yeah. in a fairly short space of time. Yeah. But um, that definitely gives people a, a better idea of what lock style fly fishing is and i think it gives them all the tools to actually go out and give it a go too so craig mate that's unreal thank you so much for sitting down with us um it's you know the gear we've covered all that as well you know it, it sounds like uh, the gear that people have probably already got is going to be adequate to give lock style fly fishing a go and then if they do want to push it to that next level they can start looking at longer rods and hover lines and that kind of thing
2: oh 100 percent. so yeah don't think i can't do it because i've got a six weight nine foot rod of course you can um, but when you if you do try it and you know start to get into it um, we do a, a, a advanced stillwater course at Millbrook and I take the blokes out in the boats the number of fellows go whoa yeah I hadn't tried this how longs this been going on <laughs> you know? um, and they all love it the one bit of advice that I, I would give and it's a, a common mistake that I see in real design Um mm. For some reason, manufacturers think that they've got to make their reels lighter and lighter and lighter. But actually, when you're fishing with a 10-foot rod, you actually want a heavier reel because you if you've got a lighter reel, it means that the rod feels tip-heavy and over the course of a day's fishing, you'll start to get some fatigue. Same when you're imping So often you're looking for a, you know, a size 3 Heavier style reels so it'll balance out your outfit and you get less fatigue over your days fishing. Um, and again, those cassette style reels are fantastic for people who are starting off because it limits to the, the amount
0: of reels you actually need for different stinking lines and that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And how, you know, you live in Ballarat obviously mm. and, and guiding a lot at Millbrook Lakes and people are, are obviously welcome to, to hit up Millbrook and get you as a guide for the day and learn these techniques a little bit more in depth. Yeah, 100%. So,
2: we, uh, again, we can do them off the bank or we do have some lakes that we can put a, a small boat on and we drift out and to, <laughs> to see this look of horror when I tie a blob, dare I say. yeah, uh, <laughs> The dirty ago. blobs. Oh, my God. But, of course, once the first fish has come, which normally doesn't take too long –
0: the, yeah, the smile starts to return to their face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're now, I guess, uh, getting towards the end of winter and we've had some more mild weather. Uh, how are you anticipating this mayfly season to go and the spring fishing and lock-style fishing as it comes onto the boil? I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, Great. Because we've had lots of water.
2: I mean, water makes fish. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and we've, we've had lots, lots of rain. The lakes are all chock block full. Um Equally, I'm expecting the season down in Tassie to be a good one as well. So we've had three years of very mild um, summers, both on the mainland and, um, and down in Tasmania. That means we've had really good growing conditions for fish. Like at Millbrook, we've almost our fish have got too big, because normally during the summer they go into hibernation when it gets a bit hot. Um, but they've just kept on eating because it's been very mild. So there's very big fish there at the moment. Um, Equally, in the central Highlands of Tassie, it's been quite mild. There's good numbers. We saw that the size was down a little bit on Little Pine last year, but guess what? Those one-pound fish are now going to be two-and-a-half to three-pound fish. I think we're going to have excellent fishing in, uh, in Little Pine this year. That's certainly what I'm hoping for.
0: Yeah. Uh, and who knows, maybe Arthur's will finally come good. <laughs> <laughs> we hold out hope. It sounds like it is on the improves, So yeah. yeah we, it would be so nice to get it back to the, its former glory. Oh,
2: well, there was a few – it had its moments last season, uh, but you had to be there, you know, mm. and if you weren't – there was very little
0: plan B, but it's, it's getting close. It's getting close. Fantastic, mate. Right? No, well, thank you so much, Craig. We hope to get you back on the airwaves at some point soon again. And, um, of course, you can see what Craig's been up to at flystream.com. Uh, he's a regular contributor there, and he does the effective flyers column. So if you're interested in his flyers and tying, then uh, definitely give that a bit of a watch.
2: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Peter.